Our second reading from today is from James 4, starting at verse 13, and we're going through to five, chapter 5, verse 6, which is on page 587. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are in a midst that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for the miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the labourers and who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury, and in self-indulgence you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Bob Saget was an actor and a comedian, perhaps best known for his role in the 80s and 90s as Danny Tanner in the show Full House. His role in the show earned him the nickname of America's Dad. Three weeks ago, on Sunday, January 9th, after doing a stand-up comedy show in Jacksonville, Florida, Saget tweeted this. Loved tonight's show in Jacksonville. Appreciative audience. Thanks again to Tim Wilkins for opening. I had no idea. I did a two-hour set tonight. I'm happily addicted again to this. Check bobsaget.com for my dates in 2022. Several hours later, Saget would be found dead in his hotel room. I uh, did check his website for tour dates. He had shows booked all the way through till the end of June. Friends, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Is that how you live? Or are you uneasy with the thought that for whatever reason, you might not get to do everything you want to do in your life? But perhaps more difficult to answer is, how can you live with this knowledge without it sucking you into a vortex of hopelessness. This is a difficult and a sobering thing to think about and to talk about. Whenever we are confronted by our mortality and the fleeting wispiness of our lives, it's not something that we would prefer to dwell on for too long. But that is exactly where James goes in this text this morning. And my hope for us is as we explore this text, as we, uh, um, as we consider it and meditate on it, that we would realize how futile it is to trust in ourselves, to think that fortune favors the bold, and to forget about eternity and how much greater it is to trust in Jesus 
for today, for tomorrow, and for eternity. Our passage is basically divided into two sections, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, and 5, 1 to 6. And one of the reasons that we are going through both today, other than the fact that they are thematically tied together, is because you'll see there in verses 13 and in verse 1 of chapter 5 that James opens both of those sections with the same rhetorical introduction. He says, come now. These are the only times that you'll find these phrases in the Bible. But it was often used by speakers and rhetoricians of the day when they were about to make an argument, when they were engaging the person that they are speaking to. And unlike the other times in the letter where James has introduced different sections by saying, my brothers, this stands in contrast. And so just from these phrases, we know that James is about to make some firm statements in these passages. So with our hearts and our heads and our notebooks and our Bibles at the ready, let's explore this passage through three points. One, be mindful, you're missed. Two, your riches will rot. And three, the righteous won't rot. And the first two points will map onto these two sections in chapters four and five. Let's begin with point number one. Be mindful, you are missed. We, uh, we don't really have cold and frosty mornings here in Darwin, but if you've ever been to a colder climate, you'll know that sometimes when you wake up in the morning, there is a mist that hovers over the grounds. For perhaps some of the kids who haven't seen that, or others, this is, you know, what it might look like, this kind of thing. Kids, have you experienced that? Was it in Darwin or somewhere else? <laughs> somewhere else. That's right. Personally, I, I love the feeling of waking up to that because, because it feels a bit like a dream, especially if it looks like this. It's like a happy dream. Yeah. And it feels even more like a dream to me now, now that I've lived in Darwin for so long. I'm, I'm not even sure if this really does exist. And that's appropriate to our passage, that feeling. Because how I feel about that morning mist is how James says we should feel, to an extent, about our very lives. Let's read from verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James is talking here to traders, the ones that Braden was referring to in that, in that class, just below the, the uh, patriarch, or whatever the word was, I can't remember. Patrist no, that's not it. It's, yeah. Um, the ones who do business in other cities. And you can tell from the way that, that James puts these words in their mouths that there is, there is an air of confidence in what they will be doing. We know from verse 14 that James is targeting, he's not targeting just the mere fact that these uh, businessmen plan, but the fact that they are so confident in their plans that they think that they have complete control over their lives. That they can, as Braden said earlier, be able to turn the wheel of fortune, to, to, to bend it in the direction that they want it to go. 
Now, that, that's an important distinction to grasp. You see, God is not against you making plans. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, this year I plan to go uh, back down south to visit my family for Christmas. There's nothing wrong with saying, next week I plan to be back on a plane home to the U.S., No, the issue and the point that James is making is that all such plans, all such uh, uh, schedules and things that we create and organize for ourselves, they need to be made with the recognition that we ultimately do not have sovereignty over our own lives. Any number of things could blow up those plans. That's why he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Sure, you you might be able to say that according to your roster, you'll be in the office or at school tomorrow, but you cannot absolutely guarantee that that is what you will be doing. Even if you're the most meticulously methodical person on the planet and you organize absolutely every little detail in your life, You aren't able to stop a global pandemic or a flood that closes down a highway from railroading your plans. This is part of what James means when he says that your life is a mist. You cannot grasp it and direct it however and wherever you wish to take it. Do you recognize that? Or do you fancy yourself to be more of a potter, one who shapes the clay of your life into whatever sculpture you want to make it? Now, it's important not to read into James' analogy here something that isn't there. He's not saying that your life is insignificant and that nobody should care about you. That's not what he means when he's talking about it being a mist. No, James's point is that you cannot control your life and any attempt to think that you can is like trying to grab the mist. And not only that, it is temporary. Look at what he says there in verse 14. It appears for a little time and then vanishes. In these verses, James picks up on yet again more Old Testament language and allusions as we've seen as we work through this letter. Proverbs 27 verse 1 and Psalm 39 verse 5 are just two examples The picture that, uh, in my mind, though, that is most striking is that of Ecclesiastes. If you're familiar with the book, the phrase that the teacher uses again and again throughout it is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or it's sometimes translated as meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And that word for vanity there uh, in in Hebrew, chabel, when it's used to refer to concrete things, it's more, more of, um, it is actually better to translate it as mist or vapor. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Interestingly, this is a view of life that we would share with most people, regardless of their beliefs, whether Christians or not. For example, if your view of the universe is that it has been in existence for 13.7 billion years and will continue on for who knows how many more billion, then your 75 years or so of life is like a speck of sand in the Simpson Desert. 
And even if you broke the world record for the longest living person and managed to live to 123 years, you would still just be a speck in the sands of time. How does that make you feel? Now, like I said, I'm not saying that you don't matter. I'm not suggesting that your life is purposeless. But it's all too easy to think, especially in our day, that this life is all that you get, that this life is all that matters. It's all, to think that, it's all too easy to think that you have been promised tomorrow, or at the very least, that you're entitled to tomorrow, and that you're entitled to live as though you are in complete control of what will happen in your life. And this is the cause of, of so much angst and anxiety and depression in our society, isn't it? I'm, I'm not using those terms in a clinical sense. I'm not a psychologist. But surely the, the anxiety of not knowing if you'll be able to see your loved ones because of COVID or reflecting on how your plans have not worked out the way you tried to make sure that they would has led many multitudes of people to struggle with and perhaps to even despise the reality of our finiteness. James echoes Jesus in Luke 12 here by reminding us all that our best made plans are straw houses on cyclone watch. How does this show up in your life? How often do you find yourself making plans and then doing everything you can to make sure that they go ahead? And how do you respond when it doesn't happen? That will tell you something about how much of your life you think is under your control. Another thing that will tell you that is how much you are willing to do or how much you are willing to compromise in order to make sure that your plans go ahead. Do you know the right thing to do and fail to do it because you know it's going to mess up your plans? Maybe you think it's okay to tell a white lie on the border entry form because it's been years since you've seen your family and that's good enough, you know, justification to do that. For those of you who are single and desire to be married, is that good desire for marriage matched by an equal trust in and submission to the Lord's good will for your life? I've seen too many people be so set on their plans to marry and have kids without submitting it to the Lord's will that they've ignored the warnings and the godly counsel of brothers and sisters who love them. And more often than not, that has shipwrecked their faith. James tells us the way we should go instead. Do not trust in your illusory belief that you can bend fortune to your will. Let's read verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, 
We will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. It should be noted that this is not the only place where we see this kind of approach to our lives and our plans in the Bible. It's one of the more explicit and clear places, which is why uh, it is a good one to point to and the one we most often point to. But as John Calvin pointed out, the, the apostles all had this view of the sovereignty of God and that came out in their speech and in their writings. They didn't have to teach it explicitly because they just assumed it. You see it in a few of Paul's letters as well as in what he says to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 18, verse 21. And the author of Hebrews also has it in Hebrews 6, verse 3. Right throughout the Bible, we see that God is the one who will do what He wills. And His will cannot be thwarted. There is nothing anyone can do to stop His will. As Job ends up recognizing by the end of his book, after God gives him that epic smackdown, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is what theologians have historically called God's decretive will. That is his will of decree. What he has decreed will happen. And James is reminding his readers and he's reminding us today that everything we do, Everything is subject to whether God has decreed it or not. Do you notice what he says in the second half of that verse? If the Lord's wills, we will live and do this or that. Not only is it a question of of what we will do in life, whether we will do this or that, it is also a matter of whether we will even live. held in His palm, is held in His hand. This is the point Jesus makes in Luke 12. He tells the parable of the rich fool who has his life and his retirement all planned out. He's been saving up for it for decades. He thinks to himself, yep, I'm going to just sit back on my laurels and enjoy the fruit of my labor. And how's God respond to him? Fool, this night Your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In the same way that a tiny insect in the palm of your hand is at the mercy of your will, so you are in the hands of God. That is an inescapable truth. But the question is, Are you happy with that? Do you live in humble submission to God and to His will? Now, let me be clear, even though James says, uh, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, He's referring to far more than simply using the phrase when you're talking about your plans. Now, now there's nothing wrong with that, right? I am a happy advocate for saying, Lord willing, as a way of recognizing and reminding ourselves of this submission to God's sovereignty. If you've been around me long enough, you will have heard it at some point. 
But those words must come from the heart in order for them to have any meaning. I learned this lesson the hard way a couple of years ago during my uh, internship at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. The whole experience of being there when COVID-19 broke out enabled me to learn the truth of this verse the same way that I learned concrete is hard when I first fell off my bike. As you can imagine, the experience of living in the U.S. and doing the internship for five months was, was already an amazing thing that we were really you know, excited about. But as part of the internship, there were also a couple of great conferences and events that, that I was really looking forward to. Uh, you know, things which uh, were so good that uh, several people from the church were saying, oh yeah, because you know, they, they do different internship classes and they go to different events. And different people to our class, they said, oh, you guys have got the best one out of all the different ones you can do. The events that you guys get to go to, easily, easily the best. In particular, it was a conference called Together for the Gospel, which is also known as T4G. It brings together thousands of pastors from all over the world. You can imagine how I was feeling at the start of the internship. I was so pumped. And so I'm sure you can also imagine that when COVID broke out in March of that year, how I felt. Of course, T4G was cancelled. When that news broke, Mark Dever tweeted out this picture of the T4G booklet that was printed months before. Just received in the mail. Look at the first words in the top paragraph. If you can't read it, they, they say, Lord willing. We didn't know about COVID-19 then. We simply knew what Christians have always known about the future. James 4, 13 to 16. It's worth us using this phrase. If you're on our email list, you'll see that I have the initials DV in brackets next to our upcoming events section. And that DV stands for Deo Valente which is Latin for Lord willing. But friends, don't say it if, if you're only doing it because you think it's what the cool kids say. I mean, the, the kids who say it usually aren't that cool anyway. Because to just use these words and not be submitted to them is to completely miss James's point. As we looked at a few weeks ago, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. Continue to assess your own heart as you consider the words that you use. And that's a good segue into the next verse. 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Brothers and sisters, this is not a trivial matter. And when James says that these ones boast in their arrogance, I think he's talking about the fact that they boast in their ability to determine their lives and their destiny. That's what he means by their arrogance. These guys think they can carry out their will without submitting to God's will. And what does James say about that kind of attitude? All such boasting is evil. James isn't mincing words here at all. Just think about this for a moment. 
This attitude, this confidence that does not submit our days and our lives to the Lord's will, it's not just something that you've, oh, I'm sorry. No, James says it's evil. Friends, arrogance doesn't just look like the person who boasts about their great talents or their great gifts or their amazing and many riches. Arrogance is also a refusal or failure to submit all of your life and its plans to the Lord's will. It is a failure to recognize that your life is a mist that is only here for a little time and then is gone. It is the doomed to failure attempt to clutch at the mist as though it is actually something that you can grasp and hold on to and shape in your life. If you want to remind yourself of this truth, try and, try and do that with the steam from the sink next time you do the dishes. Or the mist that rises from the road when there's been an hour of sun and then it just suddenly rains. See if you can grab it. See if you can hold it, shape it, direct it. Kids, you can do this too. Not, not if it's too hot. Don't do whatever like a boiling pot or a kettle or something. But see if you can grab the mist. See if you can actually hold on to it. And as you do that, remember that as futile an exercise as it is to try and grab mist, to try and somehow shape steam, it is just as futile to determine the course of your life as though there wasn't a sovereign God whose will is ultimately above yours. And remember that to live this life as though God is not sovereign, that is sin. How does this sin seep into your life and simmer away? What does it look like? Perhaps you admire and revere the self-made person. Perhaps you love uh, the idea of the person who has come from adversity, who's come from the lower classes. I mean, we still see that today, don't we? We love those rags to riches stories, those who have grabbed life by the horns and created their own destiny. Maybe you love that and you think to yourself, yeah, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. If so, be wary of your own heart, seeking to do that, seeking to find some cause for boasting in the same way. Once again, let me remind you that there is nothing wrong with making plans or setting goals or even striving to do something for the Lord and for His glory, striving to do something great in your career or in your personal life or in your relationships. There's nothing wrong with seeking to do that. But it is when we refuse to surrender these things and to release them into the Lord's hands that arrogance and boasting will inevitably start to rise. This is not about whether your plans actually happen or not. If you know, you might have great plans and they might come about and then very well might be an excellent thing. But regardless of the outcome, it is about recognizing that all such plans they are all subpoints of God's master plan. James drives the point home in verse 17. 
So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James summarizes here by saying that sin is not just doing what you are not supposed to do, it is also not doing what you are supposed to do. Christians in the past have talked about this as sins of omission and sins of commission. That is, sins of commission are sins of of actively doing the wrong thing, like lying or stealing. But sins of omission are those of failing to do the right thing. So when God says, honor your father and mother, kids, to fail to do that is to sin. And while that's generally true, as a general truth, it most readily applies to what James has just said. The person who lives as though their will can overpower God's will. The person who who seeks to, uh, who believes and who declares that they have sovereignty over their lives, rather than actively submitting humbly to God's sovereignty in all things, that is sin. Brothers and sisters, how are you killing that arrogance in your life? How are you actively pursuing humility and the giving up of your misty life into His hands? One way you can do this is to keep reminding yourself of what comes after this short life ends. Eternity for you, for me, for all of us, begins the moment we finish our last breath. How much more do you think you'll wish you had surrendered your life into God's hands when eternity begins? What you believe about what comes beyond death profoundly shapes how you live today. My favorite song in our house is uh, Ed Sheeran's Photograph. Don't know if you're familiar with it. But there are two things about that song that really annoy me. The first was pointed out by my wife, which is when Ed, right at the very end, sings Under the Lamppost back in 6th Street instead of 6th Street. You won't be able to unhear that anymore if you hadn't heard it before, hadn't noticed it before. But the other is the last line of the second verse. The whole song is about love, and as he's talking about love, he says, Love, it's the only thing we take with us when we die. More than once I've said to my kids as we've listened to that song, Is that true, kids? Is that true? Is love the only thing that we can take with us when we die? Now, I get what he's saying, all right? I'm, I'm not a hardcore literalist. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not one of those guys who likes to go around and, you know, 
miss what people are trying to say. Yes, it's a poetic, it's a romantic way of talking about how the memories of our loved ones will always live with us uh, and they'll always be with us and nobody knows what happens when we die, but this connection, you know, with people, that it goes on forever, I get it. But it annoys me because such romantic ways of talking about life and death, they only serve to trivialize the hard reality of it. It is our way of of burying the corpse of death that is rotting underground so that we don't have to face the reality of the sight and the smell of it. But the truth is that facing the reality of this life, facing the reality of its mistiness, its fleetingness, and its eventual end, and what is to become and what is to come beyond death, that is what truly enables us to live this life to live these few days that we have to their fullest and in glad submission to the one who holds our days. To fail to recognize that will only leave you with riches that are going to rot along with your body in the grave. And that brings us to the second point. Your riches will rot. This next section has a a lot of Old Testament language and themes woven throughout it. Let's read verses 1 to 5. Come now, you rich, weep and hail for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James now switches his attention here to the rich. Who are the rich? Theologian Doug Moo is worth quoting here. God's concern for the poor is reflected in many of the Mosaic laws, giving direction for life in the covenant. In Israel's later history, these laws were ignored and the poor were often oppressed and taken advantage of by wealthy, powerful Israelites. Hence, the rich occasionally becomes a synonym for the unrighteous in wisdom traditions, And many of the prophets were especially outspoken in their condemnation of rich oppressors. And this is exactly what we see in this passage. Yes, James is addressing the actual rich. But more importantly, he's addressing the unrighteous. That doesn't mean rich people cannot be saved or be righteous. No, James is using the term the same way the prophets of old did. And we know this because this passage reads very much like other woe passages in the Bible. Prophetic calls to sadness and to mourn. More often than not, when prophets called the people to weeping, they were doing so because judgment had come, like in Joel 1, or judgment was about to come, like in Micah 1. And Jesus himself picks up on this same form to condemn the rich in Luke 6.24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You have received already in this life your treasure. 
In the previous passage, James was warning against arrogant boasters, likely as fellow believers who were committing serious sin. But now, he is addressing those who are going to receive God's judgment. They are on a path to destruction. It's worth us asking, why would James do this? If he's writing to churches and speaking to his brothers and sisters who share in his faith in Jesus, that's why he's addressed them as brothers all the way along, brothers and sisters. Why would he now suddenly start addressing people who aren't in the church? Why is he addressing now unbelievers, unrighteous? Well, as we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 2, it seems clear that the church was pandering to rich people and showing partiality towards them. Do you remember that? So it seems likely that there would have been such rich people attending the church's gatherings and that this is whom James is addressing. James uses the word miseries here in verse 1, which Paul also uses in Romans 3, 15 to 17. These are the only occurrences of, of uh, misery in the New Testament. Or this, this word of it, the Greek word. And I think they're ba- both using it the same way. They're referring to the misery that is going to come to those who have rejected God. But even if you are someone who follows Jesus, for those who would have heard this, who were brothers and sisters in the faith, there is still a strong warning and a reminder to the faithful. There's a reason that the Bible talks a lot about the dangers and the lure of wealth and money. Your riches will rot. I love the juxtaposition of these two passages. You know, we so often struggle in our faith because we can't see or we can't touch God. We find it easier to believe in and to assume as real the things that we interact with, with our five senses, right? The things we can touch and smell. We look around at the world, we stand on solid ground and we think to ourselves, this is real. This pulpit, this ground, this room, these people in front of me, this material world, this time that I have, this one shot at life that I've got, this is real. But James confronts this assumption. He tells us that what we deem to be reality today will quickly pass like a mist and eternity will soon begin. The riches and the treasures that we like to pile up for ourselves and that we try to hold on to, these treasures that we want to try and grasp, they will corrode and rot. Brothers and sisters, don't listen to Ed Sheeran. Listen to Toby Mac, who wrote a scripture-based prayer song that goes, I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. James shows the great contrast between this world and the world to come in his words of judgment against the rich. Notice his words in verses 2 and 3 there. James echoes Jesus when he describes the corrosion of gold and silver and and their moth-eaten clothes. And he gives us another picture of judgment when he says that those things will eat your flesh 
like fire. I mean, that's, that's a rather quite striking image. I don't, know about you, I don't know about you, but it makes me wonder if James had Jesus' words about hell being like a fire that is not quenched and a worm that does not die, as he says in Mark 9, in mind. He calls to mind the judgment that is to come also by calling these the last days. He says the wealthy have, have stored up their treasure in these last days. These last days are the days between Jesus' ascension and His return. This is what Christians throughout the millennia have called this period, the last days. And James is saying that the rich are piling up treasure in the here and now, not realizing that there is an eternal age around the corner to come. All of this points to the fact that James is talking about judgment. And verses 4 and 5 get at a very specific issue that really demonstrates why James is speaking specifically to the rich. He says, you have kept back the wages of the laborers. An important thing to understand about this is why that was important, why that was such a heinous sin for the laborer to not receive their wages at the end of the day. You see, you and I, we don't have to deal with this so much, do we? We we have bank accounts, we have fridges. I mean, you know, trucks can't get through to Darwin for ages and supermarket shelves are empty and yet none of us here are, you know, struggling. But for a poor first century laborer, they would have needed it right in that moment to provide for their needs straight away. To delay or withhold them could mean starvation or even death. And this is why God explicitly commands the Israelites in Leviticus 19.13 and Deuteronomy 24 verses 14 to 15 to ensure that the master does not rob his worker by delaying the payment until the morning. Payment needs to be prompt. And James again uses Old Testament language of blood crying out in judgment. You can see the crying out there in, in Deuteronomy 24. But perhaps the example that immediately comes to mind of blood crying out is that of Abel's in Genesis 4.10. James is saying the fraudulent withholding of wages to their laborers, that sin cries out to God in judgment over the rich. Do you notice the great reversal that James is getting at here? Those who are rich experience the great pleasures and treasures of this world now, but in eternity, it will be the opposite. The rich laugh and whine and dine and live in luxury and self-indulgence. They have financial security. They have excellent returns on investments. Dying of hunger is not even something that enters their mind. But the day will come. The day will come when those who laugh and indulge now will instead have their flesh eaten like fire. The day will come when those who have fattened their hearts in the day of slaughter, in the here and now, and being the cause of death for others, will themselves stand before God on the day of judgment and be slaughtered. 
There is more than a little irony in James's words there. Friends, make no mistake. This is a sobering text. I don't say these things lightly, as I'm sure James didn't either. And you might think to yourself, oh, well, I'm fine, though, because James is talking to the rich, and I'm not rich. I haven't withheld any wages to any employees. This applies only to those who've, who've lived large in luxury. That's not me. But as I said, James's point is not that all rich people are unrighteous, nor are all poor people righteous. And so it's not just the rich that James is talking to. It's all, every person who seeks to hold on to this life and live large in the here and now without thinking about what is eternally real and submitting to the Lord of hosts. It is every single person who places their trust in this world who ought to mourn and weep about the judgment that is to come. You see, it is the laying up of treasure in this life that is the problem. And you can do that even if the monetary value, even if your bank account has only one digit in it or a few decimal points. A poor person can treasure a few coins just as much as a rich person can treasure billions in crypto coins. Look at how Jesus finishes that parable in Luke 12. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Even though it is obviously easier to love this world more, if you have more stuff and more money in it, the amount does not matter. The point is, where are you storing your treasure? Is it here or is it there? Is it in the world now or is it in the world to come? Perhaps you're here this morning, you're wondering about life and whether there is anything else beyond it. Maybe you do love your clothes and money and things. Or maybe you hear about the judgment of the rich and you think to yourself, yeah, go get him, James. It's the billionaires of the world who are the cause of all the world's problems. Friend, if that is you, let me ask you, have you considered whether you are prepared to meet the Lord of hosts? Have you thought about whether the things that you have tried to grasp and to hold on to in this life, the things that you would hope to perhaps present before God as evidence of your worthiness before Him, may actually be evidence against you? You see, the judgment that is reserved for the rich is the judgment that is reserved for all of us who have sinned before a perfect and a righteous God. And that is both sins of commission and omission. And that is all of us. There is only one hope. And that brings us to our final verse and our final point. The righteous 
don't run. I think deep down, the reality that life is a mist and the rotting of riches is a truth that we all recognize, isn't it? These questions and these thoughts have occupied the minds of people from all over the globe and all over the history of humanity, regardless of their beliefs. That's why you can have an android in the original Blade Runner utter the profound line, all those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. That's certainly not Christian, where that's coming from. We know life doesn't last. We know that the person who dies with the most toys still dies. Yet we clutch at life and we grab as many things as we can and we fill our arms and lives with them and we seek joy and delight in them and we try to hold on to them as though they will last and as though we'll be able to take them with us when we die. We don't realize that doing that is just as futile as trying to grab hold of a mist. This final verse, even though it is largely a condemnation of the rich, it points to a deeper truth found in the gospel. Let's read verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James here holds a view that this kind of neglect of withholding the wages to the laborer is the same thing as murder. That was a view that was, we also see in the extra-biblical texts and rabbinical commentaries of his day. Now, just like when we saw James talking about murder in the previous chapter, it's possible that he's referring to actual death to these laborers. But either way, the, the strong statement serves to heighten the fact that their actions will be evidence against them on the day of judgment. And it seems in the same way that James associates the rich with the unrighteous, James here is associating the poor with the righteous. I think, however, that James is intentionally using these terms. He is pointing to the way a righteous person responds even in the face of death. The righteous laborer, even though they are treated so unjustly, he does not resist you. For many of us, this sounds crazy. No resistance in the face of death? In the face of murder? Can you imagine being treated so unjustly, being condemned wrongly, and being the one who pays for other people's sins, who receives the consequences of other people's evil? And to do it without even a lick of protest, to do it without even the tiniest bleat of resistance? Who would want to do that? Who could do that? Friends, there is one who not only could do that, but he did. There is one who was treated unjustly, who was condemned wrongly, and who paid with his life for other people's sins.
He is the righteous one. He is the one who submitted himself to the will of the Lord. Look at what Isaiah 53 prophesied about him hundreds of years before he was even born. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus himself, though without sin, he went to the slaughter so that you and I could be saved from it. Friend, have you turned from your sin to trust in Him as Lord and Savior? Let me urge you to do so today because you could very well be meeting Him face to face tomorrow. And brothers and sisters, are you ready to let go of the mist? You say, I can pass on God's message from the Bible to you and tell you that uh, this is what life is like. It's like a mist, it's fleeting, it's quick. And you can perhaps accept that as true. But humble submission to the Lord and to His will requires an active release of this world, an active shunning and turning away from it and all of its trappings. We need to repent of our boastful arrogance and the self-deception of our self-determination, our lust for worldly treasure, and to see and treasure the one who did not resist the Lord's will for his life. The one who was condemned and crucified for sins he did not commit, yet did not resist. The one who received the death that we deserve for our sin, so that we might receive life. The one who rose again. And the one who will raise our perishable bodies as imperishable in eternity. I know that it's hard to keep remembering in the here and now. That this is the reality of life and all existence. Heaven is the thing that feels like a mist to us now. Heaven is the thing that so often feels like a dream. Believe me when I say that I associate heaven with that dreamy morning mist more often than I do with this life. I know that struggle. And yet it is as we look to Christ that we can see and know 
that we are able to hope in something far more sure and far more solid than this life. Because you see, one day all of that will be reversed. One day all of our plans and our schedules and our tour dates and our treasures of this world will evaporate away just as the morning mist evaporates away at the coming of the morning star. And until then, the question is, will you live for the mist or will you live for the sun? Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that the dream is to us so often the things that we cannot grab hold of. We can't draw down from the reality of heaven and bring it here to help us. Remember these truths. So, Lord, we pray by your Spirit, you would turn our eyes and our hearts towards the Son, towards the very one who laid down his life for us, who did not resist the will of God, but who followed through so that we might be saved. Lord, may we turn to him in all things in this life and remember that you are good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.